1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23. We're going to read beginning in verse 19 down through the end of the chapter, verse 29. 1 Samuel 23, verse 19. Then came up the Ziphites to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in strongholds in Horish, in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed be ye of the Lord, for ye have compassion on me. Go, I pray you, prepare yet to know and see his place where his haunt is, and who hath seen him there, for it is told me that he dealeth very subtly. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hideth himself, and come ye again to me with the certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall come to pass, if he be in the land, that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain, or the Arabah, on the south of Jeshimon. Saul also and his men went to seek him, and they told David. Wherefore he came down to a rock and abode in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. But there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Haste thee, and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David, and went against the Philistines. Wherefore they called the name of that place Selah Hamalakoth, meant the rock of slipperiness, smoothness. And David went up from thence, and dwelt in strongholds at Injidi. In our study, we have witnessed the meteoric rise of David. But just as quickly as David's star rises, it begins to quickly fade. For King Saul has an insane envy and jealousy directed at David, and David must flee for his life. Last week, we found him in the cave of Adullam. We found that very plaintive cry recorded in his psalms written during that time that no man would know him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. He says, no man cared for my soul. I had nowhere to turn, no place of safety, no place of refuge. So he says, Lord, I've turned to you. I've made you my refuge. And there in the darkness of that cave of Adullam, he pins the words that Connie and the lady sang a moment ago, Under the shadow of thy wings I abide. Till the storm be overpassed, till the problems be passed over. Well, it was not long before King Saul discovers his location, and David is warned by the prophet Gad that he must now flee the cave in Abdullam. 
Saul, we learn, and, and actually we're covering a section here from about 1 Samuel 22 all the way down to 1 Samuel 24, so I'm going to quickly give you a brief synopsis of it, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. But Saul is apprised that Abimelech, Ahimelech, I should say, the priest at Nob, the priest that you remember fed David and his men with the showbread, that that priest aided David in his flight. And in spite of the fact that Ahimelech, the priest, is innocent in the matter, knew nothing of what was going on, Saul has Ahimelech and all the priests put to death, showing you the bloodthirstiness of this man. However, we learn that one of the sons of Ahimelech, a young man by the name of Abiathar, one of the ones who will be a priest, and he's going to be an important man in the life and career of King David, Abiathar escapes with his life and flees to join up with David, and apparently we learn that Abiathar brings with him the ephod that the high priest wore, the garment that the high priest would clothe himself with when he ministered before the Lord. Now that's important because you see the ephod was used by Israel to discern the will of God. They would go to the priest who had the ephod and ask questions as to what God's will was for them. Now I don't pretend this morning to know exactly how that worked. The best guess that I have run into in my studies has been that of A.W. Pink. Pink surmises that behind the breastplate, behind that garment that the high priest wore, there was a pocket. And that in that pocket was kept those two very mysterious stones, the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know much about them. But we do know that those two stones, in one way or another, were used and employed in discerning the will of God. A.W. Pinkster conjectures that when a man would come to the priest and would inquire, have him inquire of God, that the priest would reach behind that garment into that pocket and he would pull out one or the other of those two stones. And depending on which one was pulled out, that indicated whether, yes, you are to do this or no, you are not to do it. Well, that's the best guess I've come upon. I don't know exactly how it worked, but it was probably something about like that. The important part is, is that Abiathar the priest brings the ephod with him down to David's camp. David is apprised also that the Philistines have attacked the Israelite city of Keilah. And he begins to inquire of the Lord, what should I do? And God directs him to take his men, and at this point they're numbering somewhere between 400 and 600 men who have defected to David to take his men and go fight the Philistines. They go down to the city of Keilah. Keilah was a substantial town, had a wall, a fortress-type city, and uh, they not only defeated the Philistines, but they were able to recover the goods of the people and basically save the lives of this city of Israel. But, and we might think that out of that, the city of Keilah would show their gratitude to David by supporting him. But David inquires of the Lord, of the priest Abiathar, Will Saul come down here? And God answers, yes, he'll come. And then he asks the question, will the city of Keilah give me up? And God says, yes, they'll give you up. As much as they might be thankful for your deliverance of their city, when it comes down to your neck or their neck, they'll turn you over to King Saul. So David again must flee. 
He flees out into the wilderness areas. If you look on your maps and study your Bible maps, there are a number of wilderness areas circling what was called the hill country of Judah. This is down in the southern part of the land of Israel, the part that David was familiar with, where he was from, one of the southern tribal areas, that tribe being, of course, Judah. He goes down and uh, into the wilderness of Ziph. Our text relates to us that Saul was trying to hunt him down, trying to locate where he was, and Saul would take, he had about a 3,000-man army, he would go down and try to attempt to encircle David. We read in about an attempt that just came so close to succeeding. He was down in the wilderness of Ziph, hiding in the forest, and we read that Saul and his army is over on one side of the mountain, and David and his men are over on the other side of the mountain. And before long, Saul's men began to spread out, and they began to encircle David and his men. They are encircled. They are surrounded. And you know, of course, generally you've watched enough westerns uh, to know what that means. But suddenly, out of the blue, here comes a messenger down from apparently Gabeah to Saul saying, The Philistines are attacking! The Philistines are attacking! And so though Saul almost has David in his grasp, he must again take his army and lead David and go in war against the invading Philistines. And then we read that in the last verse of our text that David goes down to the wilderness of Injidi. Injidi was a location on the shore of the Dead Sea. I mean, you talk about a desolate area, folks. This is about as desolate as it gets. There was a little spring there at Injidi, but surrounding it was wilderness. I know you folks that have grown up here in the south, here back here in the lush part of our country, you don't understand what the Scripture means when it says wilderness. I mean, we're talking about nothing but rocks. We're talking about nothing but just the scrubby stuff that only the goats and the sheep can eat and survive on. That's where David goes, on the shores of the Dead Sea, trying to hide from Saul. And in fact, in chapter 24, we learn that when Saul finds that he is in Injidi, he takes his army and he goes down seeking him. But David and his men hide out in the caves that are all around that area. By the way, Qumran, the city that was connected with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, there are the caves under the bluffs there where the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden. Well, that whole area is pocketed with caves, and David and his men would hide out in them. And it seems, as we read in chapter 24, one day, King Saul, in fact, walks right into the very cave where David and his men are hiding back there in the darkness, in the shadows, to, as the Scripture says, uh, cover his feet. I wish there was a delicate way of putting this, but it meant he had to go use the bathroom. What a way for King Saul to meet his end. David and his men are hiding back there in the shadows, and his men begin to say, Hallelujah, brother! Praise God! He told you he was going to make you king. He told you you'd be king. Look how he has delivered King Saul right into your grasp, right into your hands. And David says, God forbid. God forbid that I should lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed but he did sneak over in the shadows, and he cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And as Saul departs and goes about his way, David cries to him, apparently afar off, and holds up the piece of his robe and says, Saul, oh, look, if I was after your life, you think I'm out to kill you. If I were after your life, I could have killed you. Here's the proof. Here's the evidence. And we see in chapter 24 that King Saul begins to weep and says, yes, you're... 
You're righteous. I'm not. I know that God's going to give you the kingdom. And for a little while, he quits chasing David. Well, that's basically the content of these chapters in a very condensed form. I hope that you'll take the time sometimes this week to sit down and read through these chapters for yourself so that you can become familiar with it. But I want to draw some truths, some lessons, some timeless things from this old historical narrative. Some of you may be wondering, what in the world are we studying this for? What does this have to do with me? You know, I'm not going some quiz show on the life of David. You know, I'm not going to play a game or perhaps this may come in handy at Bible trivia sometime. But outside of that, what possible thing could this mean and and have to say to me? Well, first of all, I want to present to you again something that we have seen quite often. It is this incredible contrast of the characters that are seen in our text. First of all, we see the self-centeredness, the self-seeking of King Saul. Here is a man literally obsessed with himself. I have told you before that the most miserable person on the face of this earth is the fellow who is absorbed with himself. And everything must revolve around me, my problems, my difficulties. I remember my good friend Harold Rudolph down in Houston was going to teach young adults in Sunday school. And he announced one morning that um, we're going to talk about love. And one of the ladies spoke up and said, oh, that's great. I'm glad you picked that subject. You know, everybody ought to love me. That's what I'm talking about. Everything you hear, everything that's taught, it's your first impression, how's this going to impact me? What's this going to do for me? I want you to see this in the life of Saul. Look over here in 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22 in verse 6. When Saul heard that David was discovered down there at the cave of Adullam, and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gabeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants who stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Will he do that for you like I've done for you? That all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as if this day. Listen to him whine. Oh, you're in gratitude. Look what I've done for you. And yet none of you feel sorry for me. A little later, did you notice in our text, 1 Samuel 23, down in verse 21, when the Ziphites send word to him that David's hiding out back there in their back 40, and for the right price, they'll take him to him, you know. They'll turn him over, betray him. Look what Saul says. And Saul says, Blessed be ye of the Lord, for ye have compassion on me. Well, I finally felt found somebody that'll feel sorry for old King Saul. What a pitiful sight he has turned into from such a grand and glorious beginning. Chosen king of Israel, leader of Israel into battle. And now he turns into a fellow wallowing in self-pity. Got his own little pity party going. And everything he's saying is, oh my, 
how terrible it is, the things that have happened to me. And then, but against that, all that self-centeredness of King Saul, we see such a sweet, sweet submission in his son Jonathan. While David is hiding out there in the wilderness of Ziph, Jonathan goes to see him. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16. 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel. And I shall be next unto thee, and that also Saul my father knoweth. If there was anyone that we would have thought would have had the right to be envious and jealous of David, it would have been Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan is the eldest son of King Saul. He is the one in line for the throne. And yet notice the sweet submission of Jonathan. Now, what he desires, oh, he says, my father's never going to get you. God's going to put you on the throne and I'll serve you. I'll be second unto you. That was, of course, not to be in the will of God. But oh my, what a, what a character here that can take second place and be content and be happy. Submit to the will of God. And then against the self-centeredness of Saul and this submission of Jonathan, look at the sweet surrender of David, surrendering himself to the will of his God. You say, how do you know that he has surrendered himself to God's will? I say that you can see it in the meekness that David exhibits in his life. If there's one quality, you ask me what one thing stands out in your mind about King David. It is this quality, meekness. We tend to equate meekness with weakness. You know, the meek fella is the mealy mouth. Two-shoe fellow, you know, lets everybody run all over him. That's typically the way we think of someone that's meek. But that's really not the meaning of the word. In fact, I have related to some of you before that you remember seeing in the movie Ben-Hur, that great chariot race. You know, that was the part I remember. The rest of it was pretty boring. But boy, that chariot race, those, those horses taking those chariots around, around, around. Do you realize that the Greeks called those horses meek horses? That was the term that they referred to as the characteristic of a chariot horse. Now, the reason was that a chariot horse was a powerful animal, but he ran under control. He wasn't out there trying to outrun all those other three that were hooked up to him. He was willing to take his place and do his part in the team. And the Greek word for that was meekness. David is a fierce warrior. My friend, you didn't want to meet him out there on the field of battle. But there is a sweetness about David, a humility, this idea of tooting your own horn, advancing your own cause, pushing everybody out of the way, stepping on them to get to where you want to go, is absolutely not to be found in the life of David. Look at it here in the cave. His men saying, all right, David, there he is. The Lord's handed him over to you. Look at the door that God has opened to you. My friend, every door that God providentially opens is not one that you're intended to walk through. 
sometimes God opens doors of providence to see if you're stupid enough to walk through it. Brother Gary and I, we have a mutual friend who shall remain unnamed. This fellow, as long as I have known him, I guess I've known him for about 20 years, he has never stayed in one spot more than about six months at a time. He's been all over the country. I knew him out west, out in Utah, Idaho, Wyoming. He's down with Brother Gary. And Brother Gary, you remember what I told you? I don't claim to be a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I said, Gary, if he's there six months, I'll be, I'll be surprised at what happened. All of a sudden, the Lord has opened a door of opportunity, a new job. A new door opens up in bingo. Absolutely unstable. And I say that loving the man as much as I'm able to love him. But it's a point that not every door that the Lord providentially opens to you is it intended that you walk through. Here is an opportunity that God sets before David, but it is to test him and to try him. And David says, not me. I won't touch him. If God wants me king, God's going to have to make me king. If God wants to advance me, He's going to have to advance me. If He wants to exalt me to the throne, God's going to have to put me on the throne. But David will not put David on the throne. That's meekness. That is the very essence of what we find repeated in the New Testament. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It is the essence of what we in our Tuesday morning study have been looking at in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and God will raise thee up in due time. Your job is to be content with whatever place God has assigned you, wherever you find yourself, that you serve and you serve well. And in God's day and in God's way, if He wants you exalted, He'll exalt you. It's the very teaching of our Lord that when you go to the feast, you don't run up there to the high seat, the chief seat. You take your place down here. And if the, the one who's giving the feast wants to exalt you up to the head table, that's well and good. But you don't exalt yourself up to the head table. You understand why I like David? Because he looks a whole lot to me like his greater son, Jesus, who, though he be God, a very God, humbled himself and became obedient. He went down, down, lower, lower. Wherefore he exalted himself? No. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. His father exalted him to the throne in his time. So it is that David is not going to seize the kingdom or the kingship, God's going to give it to him. He's going to inherit it. The meek, my friend, are going to one day have possession of the earth, not because they conquered it, not because they warred and seized it, but the meek, blessed are they. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. God's going to give it to them. God's going to exalt them. Those that are meek and lowly now will be exalted in due time. And that's the first thing I notice. Oh, what a contrast between the characters as we see this played out on the scenes and background of human history. But secondly, I also see something here, something that tells us about the nature of godly living. Notice that the path 
that God has marked out for David is a path that involves suffering. I mean, it involves testing. It involves trials. I mean, you know, it's easy for us to sit here and talk about this stuff. You know, that David had to live in a cave, had to flee for his life, had to run around the wilderness. You know, we have the idea, Barry, of, boy, that'd be all right. Get me a backpack out there in the wilderness. But I tell you, running for your life gets old after a while. Wasn't all that much fun. This was difficult. Now, there are some who would tell us that uh, the life that we're reading about here is the life of a man out of the will of God. I mean, if you're in God's will, why, he's going to make you successful, fruitful in everything you do, subdue all your enemies. In, you know, you're just going to have it easy if you're in God's will. My friend, here is a man who is in unquestionably God's man, unquestionably in God's will, and unquestionably living a life of faith, the faith that pleases God. This is the man, according to God's own testimony, that is a man after his own heart. Here's a man living like God would have us live. And I want you to note the kind of life that God marked out for that man. Difficult. Oh, he had to deal with the guilt. The guilt that King Saul slew all those priests that had aided him. He had to wrestle with the ingratitude of a city like Keilah that though he had saved their lives, they were going to hand him over. He had to deal with the betrayal of those Ziphites. I mean, they're back, they're right there in his back home party. I mean, he's the hometown boy. And they go to Saul and say, Saul, you know, we'll turn him over. Come on down here. We'll hand him over to you. Those are difficult things for us to deal with. In fact, that last thing, the betrayal of people that we trust, and David faced it all through his life, is perhaps the most difficult trouble or trial that you and I as Christians face in our Christian life. But my friends, the Scriptures teach us that that's not unusual. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution writes Paul to Timothy. Do you get that? All makes us somehow question or wonder why, you know, maybe we're, the fact that we're not suffering, the fact that we've got it so easy, makes us wonder, are we really the godly? Peter will write to the church scattered, the Jews scattered through Asia, and he'll say something like this, don't think it's strange, the fiery trial that has come upon you to try you and test you as though some strange thing happened to you. Now, strange, it's no King James word that's a little changed its meaning a little bit. Strange means foreign. Like a stranger, originally, its original meaning was someone who was a foreigner. In other words, what Peter is writing to these people, he's saying, don't think this is something that shouldn't happen to the people of God. The things that are coming upon you. I can guarantee you a few things in life, my friend. I can't guarantee you that God's always going to keep you in hell. I can't guarantee you that He's always going to keep money in the bank for you. I can guarantee you one thing. You have put your faith in Christ. 
you have professed allegiance to Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you God will test it. He'll try it. We'll know what sort of faith it is. We'll find out if it's the real commodity or if it's just fool's gold masquerading as the real commodity. That I can guarantee you. You will face those trials, those troubles in life. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter, you know, by faith so and so did this. Oh, we read the great heroes and champions of the faith, men like Noah, men like Moses, Abraham, men like Gideon. Oh, wouldn't you like to be a Gideon, you know, driving away the enemy with your 300 men? Men like Samson, muscle-bound, you know. And he says, he talks about their faith, and indeed they were great champions and heroes of the faith, but about halfway through that chapter, the writer stops, and then he says, and others. Others? Yeah. Others had trials of Cruel scourgings and mockings. Others were sawn asunder. You know what that means? Torn in two. Ripped to pieces. Others wandered about dressed in sheepskin, goatskins. Wandered in the dens and the caves of the hills of whom the world was not worthy, he adds. And you say, well, what was missing in those people's life? You know, did they need a deeper life course? Did they need to learn how to live the victorious Christian life? The key to triumphant living, was that what was missing in their life? Was their faith deficient? He says, no, these all obtained a good report through faith. God delivered some from the fire. He delivered others in the fire and still others he delivered after the fire. It may be God is pleased to deliver you from the physical trials that come upon you. It may be that he is pleased not to. Who better to know that than old Peter himself? Peter, whom the Lord said, Peter, you're a young man now. You gird yourself. You go where you want to go. Peter, the day's coming when others are going to gird you and take you where you don't want to go. And Peter, as he writes in that first epistle, he says, I'm going to try to put these things down on paper. I'm going to try to, these things that I have seen in my eyes, things that I remember, things I've heard, I'm going to try to leave them with you before I depart, even as my Lord has shown me that I'm shortly going to have to put off this tabernacle. It was God's will that even a Peter die a martyr's death. Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna, Be faithful! And I will deliver thee from death? No. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Do you begin to get my drift here? It is not always God's will that His people have it easy in this life. Rarely is it God's will. In fact, if I coast through with nary a problem, ought to raise a lot of questions in my own mind about my own profession. Then, thirdly, in our text, the thing that just jumps out at me, I hope it does to you too, 
is the amazing, wonderful, providential care of God over his people. You know, sometimes God preserved David in a very direct way. Like when he inquired of the high priest, do I go here? Yeah, you go there. Are they going to turn me over? Yeah, they're going to turn you over. Sometimes God spoke in a very direct way and delivered David. But there were other times, and our text that we've read this morning sort of illustrates another kind of deliverance, what we would call God's preservation of his people by providence, by those things that men in this world call lucky breaks. Boy, wasn't it lucky. Just when Saul and his armies had David and his men surrounded, just when they were about to close in and grab him, wasn't it lucky that that guy came running up and saying, the Philistines are coming, the Philistines are coming. What a lucky break. Wasn't luck at all. Down in chapter 23, verse 14. A little synopsis of David's time fleeing from Saul. And it says, David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God delivered him not into his hand. There was every reason to believe that Saul would get him at any time. He had the resources. He had the men. He had the means and the wherefore. There was one reason. Why Saul never was able to lay his hands on David. God wouldn't deliver him. God preserved him. God saved him. God sustained him. Oh my. Does that thrill you? That that is the kind of God we worship this morning? I mean, let's consider if we worship that other kind of God. You know, the one that says, okay, now you're going to be my man. I'm going to do this through you and do that through you, and, and you're going to be the one. And out the door he goes and walks right out there in the road, and a old semi hits him and kills him. And then God says, okay, you're going to be the one. You're going to be the one through whom I get my purposes performed. You're going to be the one. And then he walks out and falls off a cliff. I mean, what would that teach you about God? Well, he's just about like you and me. He had a lot of big schemes, a lot of big plans, but, you know, he's just thwarted things out there that he just doesn't see coming. He's just trying to do the best he can do. My friend, you wonder, why are these historical narratives back here in the Old Testament? What is their meaning to you and me? My friend, they teach us of the nature of our God. He's not a God that has plan A and plan B and plan C and D and E and so forth. He has one plan, one purpose, and that purpose will be fulfilled. God has spoken, and that's as good as gold. You can take it to the bank. I saw this old underground film. It's called Bambi Meets Godzilla. It's a real short little thing. The scene opened with Bambi prancing through the forest. And then suddenly there's this giant foot that comes down, squish, end of movie. This Bambi meets Godzilla. My friend, when man gets in the way of God's purpose, it's Bambi 
meets Godzilla. Woe be to the man who stands in the way of the purposes of God. This thing is like a steamroller that runs through human history. Many, says the Proverbist, many devices in the heart of a man. Oh, man's got his schemes, he's got his plans, he's got his tricks. Many devices in the heart of a man. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. In the final analysis, who's going to get their way? Man or God? Devil or God? I'd put my money on God if I was you. Let's apply this to us in our closing moments here. We see the remarkable nature of this providential preservation of David here in our text. I want you to make this thing more personal to you this morning. I want you to consider for a few moments the amazing, the wonderful preservation by God of your own soul this morning. Do you understand what I mean by preservation? The fact that He has not only saved you, called you out of darkness into light, out of death into life, but that He's keeping you. He is upholding you. Brother Gary mentioned the general Baptists who had among their many doctrines the fact that man could be saved one day and lost the next. What the Bible tells us is that the same God that calls us is a God who keeps us. That yes, we persevere to the end, but we persevere to the end because there is a God in the heavens who is preserving us, keeping us. I heard a man describe an interesting scene. He says, envision yourself out in the middle of an ocean in the midst of a storm. I've never been in that situation. Some of you may have. But I'm told that that is an awe-inspiring sight. Those huge waves dashing, the spray, the breaking of the waves. And he says, suddenly I see out there in the middle of the water, there's a little chip of wood floating. And on that chip of wood, there's a spark. And he says, at first I'm struck with the fact, how did it get here? You know, it's such a hostile environment. This little spark is, is so opposite, everything around it. And he says, first I'm amazed at the fact that it's there in the first place. But then he says, I watch. And that little wood chip floats up over those waves and the spray and the wind blowing everywhere. And it somehow continues. The little spark in the midst of everything that's opposed to it just keeps on and on. And he says, then I'm struck with not only the fact that it's there, but the fact, the miracle that it continues I trust many of you have been struck with the miracle of the fact that you're here. And I don't mean here, but that you are in Christ. I suspect many of you are know something about that. But are you just as impressed or perhaps even more impressed with the fact that you're still here? 
when you consider the circumstances that you're in, the environment that is so hostile to your soul in this world, the world so near, so omnipresent, the devil going about prowling like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if that's not enough, you have the old indwelling sin itself that you wrestle and battle with the lust of your own flesh. What a wonder that that life that you have in Jesus Christ continues to this very day. The marvel of it all, the reason for it all, is that there's a God in the heavens who not only can save, but as Paul wrote, he's able to keep us from falling and to present us before his throne with exceeding joy. That the Christ who loves us, John says, he loved his own that were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Or as Paul will put it, there's nothing, there's nothing past, there's nothing present, there's nothing future, there's no creature in heaven above or earth below that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh my, do you understand what that means? That yes, I believe in the perseverance of the saint. I see that the Scripture holds out no hope for those who come upon the scene, you know, this flashy show, look what God has done for me, and then fall away into sin, never to be heard of from again. But on the other hand, the reason that I'm going to persevere is not predicated upon my ability but on His ability. Not my ability to follow, but His ability to lead. Not my ability to walk and not stumble, but His ability to make lame men walk. Not on my ability to hear His voice, but on His ability to make the deaf hear. Not on my ability keep myself, but on His ability to preserve me. We shall be finally saved, my friend, in spite of the enemies that seek us, in spite of our adversary that seeks to devour us. We shall be saved because there is one in the heavens who will not deliver us into their hands. He wouldn't deliver David, and he won't deliver us. He shall instead deliver us from evil. And for that reason, his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. One final little notice. Our final preservation, the contemplation of it is indeed wondrous, but what do we do in the meanwhile? You know, it's pretty easy, isn't it, for us to say to David, like Jonathan did, Now, David, I know God's not going to turn you over to my father. I know he's going to put you on the throne. It's quite a different thing when you're out there with your men and Saul and his men are circling you and about to close in. How do we live 
In the meanwhile, what does the life of faith look like? Did you notice our text? Why did God wait so long to deliver David? I mean, why couldn't the Philistines have attacked a little earlier and the messenger got there a day or two ahead of time? Why was it that just the moment, and that's really what our text is describing, just at the last moment, the messenger comes running up. Saul, so you've got to take your army and go fight the Philistines. Why couldn't he have got there the day before? That friend up in Laramie, Wyoming, he said one time, very astute observation. He says, to us, God always saves in the nick of time. But he said, in the eyes of God, he always saves in the fullness of time. You see, it's sort of like we're sitting on the powder keg and the, you know, the long trail of black powder. It's, it's burning, it's coming, it's coming, and it gets right up to us and then God snuffs it out. And we want to know, why couldn't you snuff it out back yonder? But God is pleased to test, try to show the faith of his people. He teaches us, does he not? If you put it out back yonder, I wouldn't need to cry to him. I wouldn't need that help that Brother Steve was talking about. God's purpose is that we live that life of utter dependency on our God, that we cry to Him, that we grow not out of dependency to independency, as we hope our children do, but that we grow into ever-increasing dependency on our God. We go into the wilderness like Israel did, and we say, I'm not going to step unless i got 40 years supply of bread right here. I want to see 40 years bread. And then I'll go. That's not how God does it. Give us this day our daily bread. Day by day. And with each passing moment. My dear friend Marsha Lane, E.W. Johnson's daughter, passed away a few years ago of cancer. Suffered for years. Amazing woman in a lot of ways. One day, her husband was walking out the door going to work, and she called, Jim, Jim. He came back and said, what is it? And she said, uh, well, I know I'm not going to die today. And he said, well, well, how do you know that? And she said, because God hadn't given me dying grace. He hadn't given me the strength to face it. I don't have what it takes, so I know I'm not going to die today. And she didn't. But when she did, God gave her dying grace. Faithful to the end. That's how He leads us. That's how He teaches us. That's how He brings His people along the road to glory. One day at a time. All we need is in Him for today. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at Your ways. They're not our ways. Certainly not the ways even that we prefer. We want the easy way. We want a path that exalts flesh. We want a way that shows everybody how great we are. Lord, Your way 
is to display to the eyes of the world that we're saved and we're saved by only one reason. Your wondrous, preserving, calling, saving grace. That you're the reason. We are who we are. What we are. If we are anything, you make it clear. It's because of your grace. You do that, Father, in the way you save us. But, oh, Father, you do it as well in the way that you keep us and preserve us. Lord, keep us cleaving to Christ. May we look day by day to Him. May we rise in the morning admitting our insufficiency for the tasks of the day. May we rise in the morning knowing full well of the obstacles and the enemies that are out in our path. But, oh, Father, may we rise in the morning making You our refuge and our hope, looking to the sufficiency that You have placed in Christ. May we draw our life moment by moment as the vine does from the branch by our abiding in Your wondrous Son. Lord, we've talked more, mostly this morning to Your people. Father, there may be some here who know You not. These sound strange sayings they've heard this morning. How I pray that Your Word might penetrate their heart, that the light might shine therein, that Thy truth might be conveyed in the stumbling, bumbling words of this poor preacher. Might this be the day that You awaken them to life, to seek, to thirst for that which only will satisfy the craving of our soul. Magnify Your Son in us, Father, whatever comes. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.